Welcome to this episode of the Science of Non-Duality Conference entitled Dying and Living. My name is Rick Archer. I am ordinarily the host of the Buddha at the Gas Pump interview series, and um, this talk will be aired on Buddha at the Gas Pump later on, but right now it's part of the online sand conference. Each sand conference has a different theme, and they felt it appropriate to entitle this one Dying and Living. My guest for this episode is Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a psychologist and New York Times bestselling author. He's been an invited speaker at NASA, Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, and meditation centers worldwide. His books are available in 28 languages and include Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture. His work has been featured on the BBC, CBS, and NPR. <clears throat> and that's just a very brief bio. He has longer bios on his website, and he's accomplished a lot in his life. I've interviewed Rick before, seven years ago, on BatGap. Those watching this one might like to watch that one. I listened to it just yesterday, and we really covered a lot of ground. I'll just start with a couple of points here. In light of the theme of this conference, in the Mahabharata, the sage Yudhishthira is asked, of all things in life, what is the most amazing? Yudhishthira answers that a man, seeing others die all around him, never thinks that he will die. And there are also a lot of great quotes and verses in the Bhagavad Gita, which is part of the Mahabharata, about death and dying and the immortality of the soul, such as, Certain indeed is death for the born, and certain is birth for the dead. Therefore, over the inevitable, you should not grieve. And then it goes on to explain how even though the body dies, your essential nature does not die. So I'm sure most people listening to this have heard those ideas before. I told Rick we only have 50 minutes, and what would we like to talk about this time? And he said, lately I've been reflecting a lot about the entwining of equanimity, love, stillness amidst changes focusing on the perennial over the ephemeral, in other words, that which lasts over the transitory, how our media age keeps fixating our attention to one pixel of reality after another while obscuring the vast sweep of time and space, the power of personal practice in the local while feeling helpless about so much of the global, and of course, various states of mind that are represented <laughs> by some pictures he sent me, which I think I'm not going to publish, but we can talk about those states of mind. So where would you like to start, Rick, in terms of the points you just mentioned, in terms of the theme of this dying and living conference? What shall we start with? Well, just so people are not wondering, uh, with regard to those three images I sent you, the first was, I think, Scooby-Doo saying, ruh row. <laughs> <laughs> which I think encompasses at least part of my reactions to the current moment. Then there was a second picture, which was published shortly after President Trump was diagnosed with COVID uh, at the White House. Uh, it's a picture of Anthony Fauci, and I'll clean this up for a general audience, just looking into the camera with a kind of a stern physician look, and it says, I freaking told you, uh, or I freaking told you. And then the last one is a picture of, uh, of a powerful Wonder Woman lassoing and taming uh, a male adversary. So I'll just leave it at that. 
Uh, I also want to add. I must uh, confess that I, I just showed those three graphics as you were describing them because the picture is <laughs> worth a thousand words. <laughs> <laughs> they are indeed. Speaking of a picture, I want to show the picture. So this is just kind of a shameless. This is my additional book. It's my sixth book, actually, Neurodharma. It's my yeah. latest one. And I wanted to show you the image of the mountain because it illustrates this larger topic of living and dying. And you can see the uh, subtitle as well. Modern Science, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. And so, just to cut to the chase here, throughout the world, in all the sacred traditions, and certainly in secular ones, there's been a recognition of this primary matter of personal mortality. And how do we come to terms with that? How do we come to terms with, uh, for example, in my case, my wife and I have two adult kids, I'm really okay with my dying, I, I think. I've uh, practiced with that a lot. I'm not okay that my kids are going to die. And so how do we come to terms with this? And uh, my own training in the contemplative traditions is mainly rooted in the Buddhist tradition, especially the original teachings of the Buddha. And he was intensely preoccupied with the impermanent nature of all of our experiences and most external conditions. In that, he was searching for what was a reliable, ultimately unconditioned basis for the highest happiness. Well, that was that the was thing that actually a, got him going, wasn't it? I mean, he came out yep. of the palace for a little joyride and all of a sudden saw sick people and old people and dead people mm-hmm. for the first time in his life. And he thought, wait a minute, what's wrong with these people? Right. As the myth has it, it's hard as to imagine that it, being yeah. actually real, given, you know, the realities of his time, but for sure. Yeah. So anyway, just that's, that's sort of it. I, I think the real, the real art of so much of life is doing what we can in the ephemeral while finding what endures, finding what is perennial. I've turned a lot, as many people have, to the wisdom traditions, and in my own case, turbocharged by modern brain science and and modern psychology for skillful means, really, to help us both deal with the present as it changes beneath our feet while deepening our sense, meanwhile, of a fundamental, unshakable resilience, resilient well-being in our own core. Good. My reaction to that is that just like the ocean, which is all choppy and wavy on the surface, there's a deeper, unchanging value to it. And that metaphor is often used in spiritual circles. But that can actually become descriptive of our experience. We can very much get to a point where, in the midst of the most chaotic situation, there's a kind of imperturbable silence. And that's where you primarily take your stand. And so the the changes in turbulence are interesting, perhaps, rather than threatening. Yeah. What helps you rest in that stillness yourself? Well, like you, I have a long-time meditation practice. I've been meditating. I'm one of those 50,000-hour meditators probably, you know, a couple hours a day for 52 years. And it's just um, gotten more and more deeply infused over the decades. I was not a disciplined person. I was a high school dropout and kind of a flake. But it was so gratifying and beneficial from day one that I just stuck to it, you know, with absolute regularity. I think there's a lot of fear in the world now with the virus going around and people being on enforced spiritual retreats, although they might not realize them as such, and all kinds of 
craziness bubbling up as people are forced to change and not having the kind of foundation of silence we were just talking about. And that kind of brings in one of your first points here about equanimity, love, and stillness amidst changes. You've been reflecting a lot about that. So let's talk about that and how perhaps we can develop more of that amidst changes so that changes are not the entirety of our reality and actually are only the sort of the waves on the surface of a much deeper ocean. Right. Equanimity and love, equanimity and compassion really need to come together because otherwise equanimity is cool and detached and kind of indifferent. And without equanimity, compassion gets overwhelmed. So how to bring those two together? There's a lot about that, as you know, definitely in in the wisdom traditions. I'll just mention, if I could, four practices that help to cultivate equanimity. And by equanimity, what I mean is a non-reactivity to one's own experiences. If we're relaxed or tranquil, which is great, we're having tranquil experiences. But equanimity is a kind of spaciousness or freedom, shock absorbers, in reference to all experiences. And it disrupts, as as you would know, Rick, of course, the sequence that moves from the hedonic tone of experiences, sometimes called the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, potentially into a sense of craving and clinging and then suffering. So equanimity is like a shock absorber, a circuit breaker in there. How do we acquire it, though, especially given that we've got a brain, you know, a Stone Age brain in the 21st century that's designed to hate what is unpleasant and want to possess or get more of my precious, what is (laughs) pleasant, pleasant, right? So I'll just say four things, and any one of them are useful practices that can deepen a person's equanimity, increasingly hardwired into their nervous system. The first is to understand your own mind. Recognize that there is this tendency to be aversive toward what is unpleasant and to try to grasp what is pleasant. And it's natural and okay to cultivate what's beneficial for other people and for ourselves, to enjoy what's pleasurable, to manage what's painful. But when we get pressured and intense and driven about that, that's when we start to really suffer. So being able to understand that process in the mind is useful. And at the deepest level of understanding the mind, also very much as you know, vipassana or insight into the nature of all experiences as fundamentally insubstantial and cloud-like rather than brick-like. In other words, empty of substance, empty of identity, because they're transient. They're always changing, our experiences are. And that deepening insight, increasingly real-time in life, really serves equanimity. So that's the first. Understand your mind. I'm sure you would agree that this equanimity and this sort of recognizing the ephemeral nature of experiences is not something you have to do all day long. It could be become deeply ingrained into your very nature. So like somebody like LeBron James doesn't have to think, well, how am I going to shoot this basketball? He's done it so much that it's just natural to him. So these kinds of qualities you're talking about here can become our default mode of functioning. Exactly right. You remind me of this teaching from Milarepa, who was looking back on his life as a great Tibetan sage, his life of practice. He said, in the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. In the end, nothing left. And that is such a lovely description. We could apply to almost anything of learning in the broadest sense, cultivation, healing, development. As you know, I'm very interested in positive neuroplasticity, the transition from the second to the third stage that Miller-Rupp is speaking to there. 
in the second stage, we can have experiences if they're prompted or we're deliberate about it, but it's not yet innate in us. And then gradually there's that movement from state to trait from the second stage to the third stage so that eventually nothing leaves and we're rested in trait equanimity, trait compassion, and trait happiness. And in several of your books and in our last interview, we discussed a lot the notion that spiritual practice over time transforms the brain and transforms its functioning. The brain is always going to be plastic, but that transformation is also somewhat stable, right? The brain learns to function in a a much more coherent way and, and much more invincibly so that over time, even the most potentially dramatic experiences don't really perturb one's inner state. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one thing that's really remarkable is how we ourselves can be active agents inside ourselves in cultivation, in bhavana, in effect, in Sanskrit. In other words, we can steepen our our rate of healing and growing in all kinds of ways by doing little things inside our mind. One of the simplest of all is to simply stay with a beneficial experience for a breath or longer before skittering on to the next thing. There's that famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. So the longer we keep them firing, the more they're going to tend to uh, hardwire the beneficial experience we're having at the time as a growing quality in ourselves, a growing trait or characteristic inside ourselves. Hey, you want to hear the second thing about it? Yeah, sure. All right. So second, really reflecting on the brain's negativity bias and so much of life, Second suggestion, really manage aversion. In other words, be really aware of the ways in which we acquire anxiety or irritation or feelings of helplessness in particular. We start getting, I think, potentially primed. I recognize this in myself by the news we don't like, and it's about the news and so forth. But that growing... crankiness and frustration and rut row, you know, inside ourselves, uh, the ways in which the longing for justice can become a craving for vengeance, all that inside ourselves primes us so that then when, in my case, my wife tells me how to load the dishwasher more effectively, more skillfully, (laughs) something happens. So really manage aversion. You know, the brain has a negativity bias. It's like Velcro for bad experiences, but for but Teflon for good ones. So it's very important, I think, to be really on top of that sense of irritability or anxiety, which partly means coping and taking action as best we can, including to help the world become a better place for everybody, not just oneself. So that would be my second suggestion for equanimity. Really take aversion seriously and take anxiety, anger, and helplessness really seriously. Yeah. I have a thought on the managing of aversion, but I think I can actually maybe add that when we get to the the news media fixating our attention to one pixel of reality. I'll bring the point up then. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah. There's a lot of science. I'm summarizing a lot of stuff about how we can become sensitized to the negative. It's a little bit like if you drag your fingernail across your hand once, it's no big deal. Ten times, no big deal. A hundred times, it's getting a little pink. By the thousandth time, your hand wants to pull away. You get sensitized. And we can, unfortunately, develop a brain through the action of the stress hormone cortisol that's increasingly prickly, reactive, depressive, anxious, which then 
predisposes us to get a little more vulnerable to difficult experiences the next day in a vicious kind of cycle. So, yeah, you know, one thing I always experienced from the day I learned to meditate was that when I came out of meditation, everything looked fresher. My perception was brighter. I felt more rested. It's like I pushed the reset button, so to speak, on my nervous system. And I found over the years that that's cumulative, that you can actually each day, some quote that I pulled from your book about how crud kind of builds up in the nervous system over time. I think you actually might have used the word crud. My experience was that you can actually dissolve more crud on a daily basis than you tend to accumulate on a daily basis. Therefore, your total crud volume diminishes. And also also your susceptibility to new crud improves or you become less susceptible so that things which once might have stressed you out, you you just take them in stride. Oh, I think that's totally true. In the end, nothing leaves, right? And people who are really far along in practice, like, you know, farther up the mountain of awakening, let's say, than I am, I look at them and I see this undisturbable imperturbability while feeling everything they're feeling. You know, the joy, sorrow, fear, anger, uh, outrage, you know, calm, whatever they're feeling in the core of it all, though, you have a sense of a peaceful abiding. And that's something we can all cultivate in ourselves. I'll give you a real quick analogy. That is that it's said that a highly stressed nervous system, which hasn't undergone any of the culturing that we were talking about, is like stone. You you, you can etch a mark in it. It's hard to etch the mark very deeply. In, In other words, it's hard to have a really rich experience, but whatever mark you make stays. A little bit more refined nervous system is maybe like sand. You know, you can make a deeper, deeper impression, and it also goes away more quickly. More refined is like water. Deep impression goes away immediately. Very refined is like air. You can put your arms right through it, and yet, poof, no impression is left. What a beautiful sequence. I've never heard that before. That's fantastic. I'll, I'll probably you you know, use mention it. it at some point. Yeah. Okay, so the third suggestion for equanimity, very important, grow the good. I think so much of life is really summarized in terms of deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good. You know, there's nothing in what we're talking about that's about overlooking harms being done to others. There's nothing in what we're saying about overlooking one's own privilege and just thinking, you know, because you were born on third base that somehow you had a triple. And so we got to deal with the bad. But on the other hand, if that's all we do, we get worn down. Increasingly, we're no use to others or to ourselves. And in fact, by turning to the good, we equip ourselves, we strengthen ourselves so that we can increasingly deal with the bad. And I'm using the terms good and bad just pragmatically here. And it's also very important when we turn to the good. In other words, when we recognize what is working alongside what's not working. When we recognize the good in ourselves amidst whatever else is present, the good in other people amidst whatever else is present, it's also really important to take it in, to let the learning land. In other words, to encourage that movement from state to trait. So when we're experiencing some sense of reassurance, say, or some sense of our own skillfulness or moral commitment or inner peace, slow it down. You know, keep those neurons firing together so you can actually marinate kind of in that experience so it really becomes a part of yourself. So that for me is the third big headline around equanimity. And then the fourth one is find what endures, that movement from the perennial to the ephemeral. 
Uh, I just think about the ways in which, speaking of myself, I'm really caught up in the latest news. I mean, the pace of news and events. It's a fire hose. I mean, I've lived quite a while at this point. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. I saw a lot of tumult. It was nothing like this today. The bizarreness, the whipsawness, the sense of the bottom falling out of the country in a whole new kind of way is really weird. On the other hand, we can get so caught up in the short term, the immediate, the immediate pixel that's barraging us from the media that we can lose sight of, for example, nature. Nature is enduring. Nature as nature is enduring. Relationships, relatedness. Here it is. You and I are swinging back, talking with each other after seven years. That's pretty cool, even though we don't know each other well still. There's a enduring here. And practice. I think of practice as the ultimate refuge because things will happen. Things will come and go. But we can never be defeated in the core of our being, in the innermost temple, to practice. No one can stop us from practicing in the core of our being. And no one can do it for us there. Yeah, that was one of my early realizations that, you know, when I began practice, I thought, wow, this really works. And if I just stick to this, things are just going to keep getting better. I wasn't the type to make firm commitments, but I made one (laughs) because it it was so dramatic. And this thing about the pixel, you know, the media focusing our attention on one pixel of reality while losing the big picture. I think that the best antidote to that is, again, within one's own awareness, because deep within, we actually do have infinite consciousness, we could call it, or infinite awareness, unboundedness, broad comprehension. And yet through the routines and conditioning of life, we get narrowed down more and more, you know, so not only through the media, but anything we focus on is only a small little peephole of reality. But we can culture within ourselves the capacity to maintain that unbounded awareness in the midst of focusing sharply, as sharply as we wish, you know, piloting a 747 if that's our job. And then it's a completely different orientation to anything we put our attention on, news or walking in the woods or anything we do in life. Completely true. One of the things that is really kind of a recent finding in brain science that resonates with many traditional practices is the value of widening your view. Literally in the room, for example, if we're looking close, like we do so much these days, down at our phone, at a screen, like you and I are doing right now, that naturally activates perceptual processing systems in the brain that are termed egocentric. They're not mean, they're not selfish, they're not narcissistic, they're just self-referential, which makes sense if it's near. And we're talking about systems that evolved over 600 million years back in Jurassic Park, (laughs) then the Stone Age, then Game of Thrones, right? So these factors inside us are to help us survive. So near at hand, friend or foe, you need to know. But you can watch, you can just do it in your experience. If you shift your gaze out to the horizon, or you look 10 feet away, say, or even above, that naturally starts to engage more ancient, actually, more fundamental neural perceptual circuitry that takes in things as a whole, impersonally, without privileging your own perspective, just the jungle as it is, right? The Serengeti planes as they are, distinct from what they mean to me. 
And we naturally move back and forth between those two perspectives, egocentric, the second one's called allocentric. Both are important in life, but so much of our culture and everyday experience is a training in the egocentric, in part because most of us don't do things like being in the wild or in nature where in our work, we're extending our gaze to the horizon routinely. We're looking a far distance routinely. And so that's why I think it's especially important to look for little ways to widen your view, to get that bird's eye perspective, to get a sense of your body as a whole, for example, the room as a whole, or the whole situation uh, as a gestalt, uh, because that does really good stuff neurologically, including quieting, inner chatter, and the voice of me, myself, and I. Yeah, I know you like to hike and, and climb up mountains and stuff. I really like that too. And I'm, I'm sure everyone listening to this has had the experience of standing on a beach and looking out over the ocean or lying on your back on a summer evening and looking at the stars and that kind of thing. And it really uh, it has a profound effect, as you were just saying. I remember one time we came back from a one-month camping trip where we had been out in Colorado or someplace hiking in the mountains. And I was standing in line at a restaurant and somebody looked at me and said, you look like you've been experiencing something really beautiful recently. <laughs> they could just see it. You know? uh, the glow is coming off of you. Yeah. That's cool. But if we live in New York City and we don't have the opportunity to be in the mountains or look at the stars or anything very often, again, there are practices that one can do that you can allow your awareness to just sink into unboundedness, right, in your own little meditation closet. You don't need special circumstances. That's great. So those are my kind of four equanimity suggestions. Understand your mind, really deal with aversion, grow the good, and find what endures. Among the notes you sent me, the power of personal practice in the local while feeling helpless about so much of the global. I guess maybe a lot of people do feel kind of helpless these days. Like many, many people, I'm sure. My heart's been really heavy. At this time, I, I mean, I live in America. I think in much of the world, there are many reasons to have a heavy heart. And we do what we can about the, the bigger picture. And that's, I think, really important. And, and also, like many, I've been mobilized in the last year or the last several years to do more than I'd been doing for the sake of the greater good. We do that. But clearly, there's a limit for most of us, at least, on the impacts we can have out at the global. It's kind of wild to appreciate, for many people at least, that even while craziness is going down at the global, in terms of global warming or in terms of the elite power, um, say at the highest levels of government around the world, remembering that only probably about 5% of the people on earth live under any kind of functioning democracy. So imagine what the systems are like for 90, 95% of the people in the world. So my point is, what's kind of amazing is to realize that most people throughout history have lived under the thumb of some authoritarian jerk or another. Certainly since agriculture came in 10,000 years ago and with it surpluses of food that enabled surpluses of wealth and power. So one thing that I think is really important to realize is that it's okay to enjoy the local. It's okay to enjoy the food on your plate, the laughter of children. By enjoying it less, it's not going to help global suffering diminish. By enjoying it more, it's not going to increase suffering in the world. And it's really, I think, 
important, particularly for people who perhaps are uh, very saturated with news about the global, the big picture, and so forth, to realize, okay, that's true. I'm doing what I can. And meanwhile, it's okay to live well locally. It's not a betrayal of the greater good. And in fact, by living well locally, as best I can, and I want to be crystal clear about the privilege that comes with being white and male and professional and so forth. I've spent time in Haiti. I've spent time in, in India and Bhutan. And, and the people who often are grappling with really tough conditions know better than I the importance of appreciating the local. You know, this sip of water, this laughter of a child, this funny thing a dog does. And I think it's really important to reserve the right to oneself to be able to do that, especially these days. Yeah. If someone doesn't know how to swim, then and that could be very useful if someone is drowning. And I think, you know, we have to have our own life on a kind of a solid foundation of contentment or fulfillment in order to be able to radiate that to others. Even if you were like to join the Peace Corps or something like that, if you're all stressed out and unhappy and disharmonious because of your inner state, then you're not going to be very effective in your tasks in the Peace Corps. And I think there's a deeper mechanics too, which is that there's a a kind of a collective consciousness that is hierarchical. I mean, there's world consciousness, national consciousness, you know, state consciousness and so on. But individuals are the units of it, the way individual trees are the units of a forest. If the individual trees are all withered and dry and gray, then you fly over the forest and that's the way it's going to look and it's going to be susceptible to forest fires. But if each tree is kind of nourished from its roots and is nice and healthy and green, then you're going to have a green forest. On the one hand, spiritual people are sometimes accused of being self-indulgent or self-serving or self-centered or something. It's all about me, me, me. But on the other hand, there's a balance where you engage in enough self-development to be able to, you know, as the saying goes, my cup runneth over, to be able to overflow for others. That's totally true. As we both drink a little water here. Yeah. My cup, my cup isn't running a thing over, but <laughs> it was good to drink. I was having lunch with my wife today, and we were talking about this interview and what we're going to talk about and talking about spiritual people, quote unquote. And she said, you know, maybe ask him, why is it that spiritual people are so often so crazy? They get obsessive, neurotic, I and mean, you, you go into any kind of sangha or any kind of group or spiritual organization or something, and there's a lot of nuttiness going on. Is it that nutty people are attracted to spirituality or that spirituality makes you nutty? Or you have some <laughs> other idea? <laughs> well, I am a licensed psychologist. Mm. So. It's also true that I've spent a lot of time in the human potential movement, including very intensive forms of personal practice and some spiritual traditions in my own history involving a guru that uh, are, you know, pretty wild. So, I, you know, some background uh, in, this, in this territory. My hunch, actually, is that people are drawn to deep spiritual practice, some of whom are already a little unstable or eccentric, and they're drawn to the practice because it speaks to them. Much of ordinary life doesn't particularly interest them very much, and it serves them. And some of them become really remarkable teachers on the one hand. So I think there might be a little bit of a so-called selection bias, very, very slightly. On the other hand, many people who are highly esteemed teachers at this point will talk about their background of depression 
drug addiction, fairly serious mental disturbance, quasi-psychotic states in their 20s, let's say. And yet, if you're with them, and they really are walking or talk. I mean, in a monastic setting, they're being observed 24-7. Uh, things are pretty transparent, particularly these days with social media. You get a sense of who's got feet of clay and who's, on the other hand, the real deal. It could take time, though, for that sense to emerge, you know, but still tends to come out over time. So these are people who are really in good shape. So I think practice has really served them. Yeah, it's healed them. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm good with that. And I think it's important, too, to appreciate we could put on a spiritual act, like Chogyam Trungpa taught. It's important to cut through spiritual materialism. And, you know, I, I grew up in L.A. and the human potential movement there had a lot of feeling like, you know, my brand is authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> right? You'd meet him at a party and you suddenly realize after 20 minutes of what seemed like a real nice heart-to-heart mutual conversation was them subtly trying to enroll you in their training and holding themselves up as an exemplar of how wonderful their training was and you ought to learn how to be more like them. And I think that's really BS. On the other hand, I think it's really easy to take shots at small exceptions like that small, 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 important, but very small percentage of people who have a serious psychotic issue on a long-term meditation routine. Like that's a real issue. We got to screen for people and be aware of it, but it's very uncommon and would be really inappropriate to use, for example, the risks of a breakdown experience in an intensive meditation retreat for a very small percentage of people, and then generalize that into wholesale cautions about uh, an everyday practice of mindfulness and, and maybe a 10 or 20, 30-minute practice of meditation occasionally. So that I've just seen that a lot. People can make their bones and rise up the ladder, rise in the ecosystem of fame, if you will, the ecology of fame, by trying to bring down the big kids. And I just think we have to be careful about that. I've seen a lot of that in academia. You see it in academia. You see it elsewhere as well. I have a related question. There's a term in vogue these days, uh, conspirituality. And it refers to the confluence of conspiracy theories and the spiritual community. Recently, the New York Times and Rolling Stone did an article referring to a yoga teacher named Sean Korn, who she was the only one willing to put her name to a uh, statement that was made by a bunch of people in the wellness community about how shocked and disturbed they were about the degree to which conspiracy theories in general and QAnon in particular were infiltrating the wellness community. There's also a, a podcast that I listen to called conspirituality.net. I got an email last night from a friend who was just talking to friends in Sedona who told him that in their estimation, about 75% of the people in Sedona, the new agey types, are now into QAnon and think that Trump is the savior and so on. So a lot of people are concerned about what appears to be a pandemic within a pandemic that's afflicting the spiritual community where, where people are impressionable and, and vulnerable, susceptible. Crazy. Crazy. They don't have enough critical thinking or, or we were talking about equanimity earlier and they're getting brainwashed as spiritual people often have in cults by a kind of a global cult and it's causing a disruption i know Mauricio and zaya are concerned about this too the hosts of the sand conference so do you have any thoughts on that phenomenon as a spiritual practitioner and psychologist i have not personally bumped into it in my own 
activities, while at the same time, I completely believe what you're saying here. I was in what I called half a cult in my uh, 20s. Yeah, cult light. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, but it was pretty intense. And one of the things that was very humbling for me as a, by nature, stubborn, independent, autonomous kind of person growing up in a dominating parental environment with well-intended but dominating type parents, I was blown away by how much I drank the Kool-Aid, by how much I bought into it and the influence of social pressure and groupthink and group pressure. So I do have some sense of what people are talking about. To me, the crux of the matter is grounded in the teaching of both Buddhism and science and I think other perennial traditions. Are we grounded in reality as it is or are we deluded in some way? Is there an openness to fact? What are the actual facts and an interest in in actual factuality? And one of the fundamental characteristics of any kind of cultic group is that it's in a bubble and it just will not alter its fundamental paradigm based on factual information. And that's just the characteristic. And I think the long-term healing of that or addressing of that is to have the moral courage in our culture to really punish those who freeload the truth. What I mean by this is that what enabled altruism to emerge was that people who would rip others off were identified and, if need be, punished inside hunter-gatherer bands. So without the recognition of freeloading and punishment for it, there's no basis for altruism. That's why altruism is so rare in the animal kingdom. Humans are very unusual in that regard. And I think in the social media milieu that we have these days, there's no punishment for disinformation, misinformation. In fact, you can get famous for being a wonderful troll. And so I think it's really important for people to have the courage to just be matter-of-fact about, no, that isn't true, and to be able to be straightforward about that and promote that kind of grounding in the truth rather than in delusion. Yeah. I remember Kellyanne Conway was talking to Jake Tapper of CNN, I believe, and she, he said, well, well such and such is a fact. And she said, well, these are alternative facts. And he said, alternative facts? What are you saying? I think that one way of defining spirituality and rising to enlightenment is coming to know the truth. I mean, what the ultimate reality is. That's what the Buddha and all the others have taught. That you know, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So in this day and age with all the, the stuff flying around in social media and um, on TV and in the various regular media, it's getting really hard for people to know what the truth is. And if you've seen the, that documentary, The um, Social Dilemma, have you seen that yet? No, I know the territory of it, and it's, it's deeply alarming. It's but amazing, I want to just yeah. interject there. Really, anyone who wants to know something factual, the basic, what is the factuality of it, can usually find out in 10 minutes or less online from multiple credible sources that converge on something. So, for example, COVID is a real virus. (laughs) There is a real plague spreading through us. And it's well managed by doing certain things that countries like Mongolia got on top of. And it's not well managed in the United States. Uh, We're the worst managed of any developed country in the world. 
that's a fact. And it's not hard to discern that if someone has the desire to discern that. That's that I think is a really important point. Some incredibly subtle nuance about the details of the Russian disruption campaign in the 2016 election. You know, this might be harder to pin down. But the big picture clearly is they attacked our democracy and Trump amplified it to his own benefit. That's just an undeniable fact at this point. Yeah, you ought to get out more. I get these emails every day from, you know, our CN on YouTube and, and Facebook and whatnot. People oh, saying, I get them too. Yeah, COVID is too. a hoax and, oh, yeah. and Fauci oh, yeah. is, is the devil and Bill Gates is trying to microchip everybody. And, you know, a lot of people look at that stuff. And they say, oh, yeah, COVID is a hoax. They're going to microchip me. And they just sort of don't think twice. They kind of accept it. Right. Yeah. What I would speak to that, though, and, and this is something is really clear in the Buddhist teachings, and it's certainly been really clear in every teacher I've ever had. At the end of the day, I don't know, (laughs) I could say it in different ways. I'm thinking also my rock climbing guides. You know, at the end of the day, each of us has to do our own work. There's no substitute for personal character. There's no substitute for personal virtue. This doesn't mean getting all righteous and high and mighty about it, but there's just no substitute for whether a person at a moral level inside themselves, deep down, wants to know what's true and is willing to tolerate the discomfort of having to, as Jean Piaget talked about, different kinds of learning, accommodate their paradigms to the new information, not just assimilate the information into an existing framework. Uh, without budging their framework. And that, at the end of the day, there's no way around it. People are making choices. You and I are making choices with fallible minds in a, in a changing world to try to understand what's true. And when I see people like you're describing, what's really clear to me, they don't want to know what's true, right? Or they want to believe in something that's a kind of a fairy tale for whatever personal gratification that is. And and of course, they don't think it's a fairy tale. They think that, oh, now I know what's true. And all these other sheep are being deluded by the mainstream media and so on. And, and what, wake up, do your research, you know, find out, learn what I have learned now. And, and it's such a tricky thing. It's, it's fascinating in a way, but it's, and it's, it's rampant. I mean, they're, I'm, I'm, I have a Google alert for QAnon and I get an email a day with dozens of articles that are being written about it. It's kind of this proliferation of, craziness that's sweeping the world. Yeah. It, like right now I'm reading a, an amazing book. If you like fiction, I just, it's so well written. It's beautiful. It's called Wolf Hall, Wolf Hall. And it's about the time of King Henry VIII. Remember him, King Henry VIII, many wives. And the central character is Thomas Cromwell, who I knew almost nothing about. And it's beautifully written. And what it reminds me of is the ways in which really throughout history, there have been these bizarre cults who believed weird stuff, right? The end of the world is coming or, you know, the millennium is coming and it's all going to change and uh, the end, you know, all this sort of stuff. So you're right. I, I think you're exactly right. There is some vulnerability in us to this kind of thing. And gosh, at the end of the day, what can we do about it, right? I think, meanwhile, we can honor and support the institutions that promote truth, you know, academic environments generally, science, research, journalism, nonprofits who are doing the best they can to surface uh, what's actually true. 
I was at a dinner party, as it turned out, with our local uh, congressman. He's a congressman and, and where I live a couple of weeks after the election in 2016. And we were all just staring at him like deer in the headlights, like, oh, my God, what do we do now? And he said something I've never forgotten. He said, send money to lawyers. Send money, support those in the justice system, such as the ACLU or other well-intended nonprofits, environmental groups, let's say, who are an independent agent of positive development. That's just one of many things we can do to support fact-finding and truth-telling, inquiry investigations, depositions, Freedom of Information Act inquiries, things like that, you know, support lawyers and lawsuits that over time put the truth on the table. I think among many things we can do to support truth-telling ultimately. Somebody sent me Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, the other day, and the first line of it is, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. So perhaps since we've gotten off on this theme and we're almost out of time, that could be our wrap-up point. We need to learn to um, develop the discernment internally so that in a crazy world, we are not swept up in the craziness. There's a verse in the Yoga Sutras which talks about something called Ritambara Pragya, which is said to be that level of intellect which knows only truth, where you can really discern the truth of things. And it's considered to be an essential qualification for spiritual enlightenment. So I would say that anyone listening to this, if they are sincerely interested in spiritual development, keep that in mind. Question your convictions and do what you can to continue to, to develop discernment. If you see something on the internet that sounds convincing, maybe find an alternate viewpoint as well and, and see which one holds the most water. Yeah, I think that if multiple university-centered organizations of one kind or another, multiple established medical scientific organizations, multiple mainstream news sources, the BBC, the New York Times, Wikipedia actually is a remarkably good source of information that's very accessible very quickly. Really, within 10 minutes, it's amazing the kinds of things you can find out if you actually want to know what is actually the case. Maybe we can finish on something a little more spiritual. And sure. I, I was thinking about the topic of living and dying. And one of the things we need to be not deluded about and can see clearly is the you know eventual passing of our own body while living well meanwhile. And I think about a tombstone epitaph that said essentially this person lived until he died, lived until she died, lived until they died. And I think that's the opportunity for us all to be really clear about the ephemeral nature of passing phenomena while rested in the eternal now, the eternal present that endures. And as we said in the beginning, that's, just, that's not just a philosophical exercise or something. It's something that can become grounded in your experience in a very visceral, concrete way, and which correspondingly is a whole style of brain functioning that can get cultured over the years. I was told this, people may correct me, it was the previous Karmapa the 16th, maybe, the previous one. He was dying. It was his, in his last days. And his students, who just loved him, of course, were so stricken and sad. And to comfort them, he said something that just blew my mind. He looked at them and said, don't worry, 
nothing changes. And to get that, don't worry, nothing changes. What is it that doesn't change? Don't worry, nothing changes. Uh, It reminds me of the line from T.S. Eliot. In one of his poems, he says, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. And right there, we have equanimity and compassion together, right? Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Right. Well, we'll have to end with that. So it's too bad we only have 50 minutes. I could go on with you much longer. Oh, pleasure. (laughs) Enjoyable talking to you. So thanks so much, Rick, for participating in this. Thanks to those who are participating in the SAND conference and later on to those who happen to watch this on Buddha at the Gas Pump. Take care, all of you. Sit still. That's all right. Greetings to everyone. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.